happened when I was in college, right? And this guy, I'm going to call him Samir. But his name was not Samir. I've changed things up to protect the innocent and the guilty. So, Samir grew up in London. His family was from Pakistan. And he spoke like James Bond. His ties cost more than my sofa. He drove a cream-colored BMW. And he had this amazing apartment. But he was a cool brother. I liked him a lot. And one day, I got this invitation that Samir was going to have an investor's conference at his pad. And my roommate, Johnny, up for anything, he was going, some other folk, and I was like, cool. And it was nice, wine and hors d'oeuvres and all that. And suddenly, everyone's acting all adult and talking seriously about managing portfolios and risk allocation and stuff. And Samir, he stood up and broke it down. This new phase of a growing textile concern, opening factories in Pakistan and Mexico, and given the track record of previous investments, why, it was only right to open this up to close family and friends. And I'm sorry, but the projected returns are so spectacular. We simply cannot allow everyone who might wish to participate in this investment. I'm sure you understand. The minimum investment was $5,000. And I don't know how people had $5,000, but people had $5,000, $10,000. My roommate, Johnny, he suddenly had $20,000 for this entry round investment. You can expect to have your money doubled in six months. I didn't have any money and it takes money to make money. I didn't have any money. So I hid in the back eating snacks. A few months into it, Johnny started asking, how the factories in Pakistan coming? Well, it turns out there were some construction delays. And you know, with the state of corruption, things taking a little bit longer than expected. And a few more months go by, and some sort of unexpected landslide further delayed groundbreaking. And then, bloody hell, it's what with the bees? They're swarming round and such. And it's around this time that Johnny... Johnny asked Samir and I if we want to go across the Windsor Tunnel from Detroit to Canada to see the Windsor Ballet. And we have a great time till we run out of ones. And on the return, we're waiting to cross back into the U.S. of A. And a border officer approaches. Says he wants to see our papers. Cool. He's checking everything out. And then he asks Samir to get out of the car. The officer's talking about Samir's visa had expired. Then, this normally cool Samir, he gets a little flustered. But officers, surely as a student, you understand I must return to my studies. But even Samir couldn't smooth talk his way back over the border. His student visa had expired. We take him to a Holiday Inn, and I tell him, I'll see what I can do back in Ann Arbor. We get back home, and I'm tripping. I'm trying to figure out a plan. I'm telling my roommate, look, we got to get some signatures from professors on a petition in order to get his visa reinstated. And Johnny up for anything's like, calm down, calm down. Call Samir, put him on speaker. And I call, and I'm like, Samir, we're trying to figure this out, man. We're going to bust you out. And Johnny's like, hey, man, it sucks being stuck in a Holiday Inn, doesn't it? (laughs) You know, it sucks worse have your friends think you're a student when you dropped out months ago. Yeah, yeah. And it really sucks to have your dad's business go bankrupt so the fat checks stop coming in, doesn't it? And it sucks when you rip off your friends with imaginary factories to cover your little lifestyle. And the end of the phone is silent and I can't believe what I'm hearing. What sucks even more is to sit in your hotel room and just now realize that someone took you over the border, flagged your car, and set you up. That really sucks, doesn't it, Samir? Johnny hangs up the phone, and I'm looking at him with my mouth hung open, wondering, where did this Michael Corleone guy come from? And he asked me, you're scared, aren't you? (laughs) Scared? Scared? No way, man. I ain't scared. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present 
the long con. What happens to people who lie and cheat and steal and the women who love them? Nah, I kid. Today, Snap Judgment brings the real-life stories of career con artists, criminal fakers, lifelong liars, and the fallout that inevitably comes when first we set out to deceive these terrible snappers. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Today, we're going to get it started right with a story from the rarefied art world. And as you will soon discover, the first mistake to any con is messing with the wrong person's money. When I was in high school, my uncle Ron and his family moved from New York City out to the Burbs to Maplewood, New Jersey. My uncle was an artist, and Maplewood wasn't exactly a thriving hub of the art world, especially compared to the city. So when he opened a gallery on a rundown back street, everyone thought it was kind of quaint. But then one day I heard from some of my family that something peculiar had happened and that Uncle Ron's little gallery was getting attention. This is how Uncle Ron explains it. I was going into a gallery one day, and this kind of quiet, shy black guy was standing outside, and I asked him if he wanted to come in. He acted a little reluctant, but he did come in. And then he just sort of stood there and looked at me, and he handed me an AMP bag, which I opened up and was full of these little cardboard paintings. Most of them were like sort of magical-looking still lives, little sailboats and teardrops. Other ones were of slaves and various kind of slave encumberments. I said, these are great. You know, I'd like to show these here. And he left them, and he never told me his name, never never spoke at all. Every time I asked him a question that was personal, he would just put his hands up to his lips and said, shh. He said he wasn't quite sure what to make of the encounter. But then a few days later, another clue appeared. In the back, outside the gallery, Ron found a suspicious package. There was a box. Inside the box were all these hundreds of little pieces of broken styrofoam with a little note on top of it, which was a a way of how to put the thing together. It was actually a a broken-up large painting that had to be reassembled. And after uh, two days of assembling it, it was a 8 by 8 foot sort of a somber-looking, dark, someone coming out of the darkness with light eyes, a slave with a noose around his neck. So even though my Uncle Ron said he still didn't know anything about this guy, he decided to hang the art up in the gallery and introduce his work to the world. The paintings were great, and I was just going to show them. And, you know, if I sold any of them, he would get the money. A lot of people showed a lot of interest, and when they heard the story, of course, it was like, wow, I'm really interested. And then the word sort of got out, and sort of a firestorm started. And the show was, you know, an incredible success. Everything sold, and people, a lot of New York collectors were very interested in it. Word of Ron's anonymous artist rippled through the art world. And before long, an art critic for the New York Times, Barry Schwabsky, was reviewing the show. He was, you know, very impressed with the show. He really liked it. Gave it a very good review, along with a bunch of question marks, since the artist was anonymous. And that brought a lot of people in. Once the Times wrote about it, it was on. The art was selling, the small ones were going for 150 bucks, and the large ones about 900. The show made about $25,000. It got so much attention. It was like an artist's dream, you know, selling it all out. Things were great, but with success came scrutiny. And then there were collectors who wanted to find out who he was. I said, I didn't have any idea of how to get a hold of them, where to find them. And they suggested maybe they should hire a private detective. And I was like, man, you know, I don't really think so. And that's when my uncle decided things had gone too far. He called up the New York Times writer who had gotten him all the attention and said he needed to set the record straight. That's when I called up Schwabsky and told him that I was the anonymous artist. There was no mysterious black man with a plastic bag. My Uncle Ron was the anonymous artist. So then Ron picked up the phone, called everyone who had purchased the art, and fessed up. 
I called people up and said, look, this is the truth, this is the story. So if you still want the piece, then it's fine. If you don't, then that's fine too. A lot of people didn't want the piece. A lot of people were really pissed off. The ramifications of it for me was that I discovered that creating a fictional artist was really more than I had bargained for because I think everybody came suspicious of me after that. My uncle's world fell into two camps, those that were impressed with his artistic genius and those that felt betrayed. So there was this battleground between the two groups of people. I was surprised about, you know, the people who took it the hardest and the people who took it the best. The people that got mad about the race issue were mostly white collectors who thought I was using race, you know, as manipulation for them to buy work. And most of the black people, a lot of black people bought work, were very supportive about the idea because they thought it exposed racism. I wouldn't say it was fistfights, but there was, like, very angry feelings expressed. Among the angriest was Ron's own wife because she was also tricked. My cousin Aaron, Ron's son, says he knew all along his dad was really the anonymous artist, but for some reason his mom didn't. I thought it was silly that people that knew him well, like my mom, didn't know it was hit. Like, you could walk down into the basement and just see all the work. I feel like since he was saying it wasn't him, that was more important than anything she saw. Aaron's mom, who's now passed away, had been defending my uncle and the anonymous artist all over town. One of the reasons my mother was so upset was because, yeah, she she was sticking up for him. People that would say, this seems like Ron's work. She'd be like, no, it's not. I'm not proud that he had to keep it from certain people. But I think he would have his own reasons for that, and you'd have to ask him what those reasons were. I needed people to believe in it to build up the art, to build up the belief myself. People's belief in it made it stronger. So, yeah, her belief, since she was around me a lot, and I was talking to her about it all the time, made it grow. I think she understood, and I think she, she was fine with it in the end. My uncle says his social and artistic experiment was a success. But the repercussions to my family were the price we all paid. Almost 15 years later, my mom is still really pissed at him. And my cousin Aaron says he hopes his dad learned a lesson. The problem is, when you hurt someone's feelings, no matter who it is, but especially your wife's feeling, there's a problem. And no matter what he says, I think if he got to do it over, he wouldn't have hurt anyone's feelings. But for my uncle Ron, it wasn't so simple. I think that having hurt feelings is... Not bad, is it? I mean, it's sort of is a way of growing in some ways. I mean, I hate to make it, you know, you hurt somebody and they grow. But the thing was about emancipation. It was freeing people from the constrained idea of how things work and how, how things operate. And, I mean, it all ended peacefully. No one got killed. A few years later, my uncle moved to Philly. And these days, he's got a little gallery there. Well, actually, he calls it a collection, not a gallery. It's a collection of artists who may not exist or fabricated artists who may not exist. So my identity is not local. It's infinite. It keeps on growing. The anonymous artist is still living well on the street, creating art. That story was produced by Andrew Stelzer and Snaps Anna Sussman. To find out more about Ron Cohen's, or should we just call him the anonymous artist, his ongoing shenanigans, find out more on our website, snapjudgment.org. We're going to have links to those New York Times articles if you want to check those out. When Snap Judgment returns, we've got wise guys, scoff laws, and somebody's getting strapped to a lie detector when Snap Judgment, the long con, continues. Don't go nowhere, she. <laughs> yeah, Snap Judgment.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the long con episode. Now, some people, some folk have a lot on their minds. They need to get a few things off their chest. So they call the Snap Judgment, right? Right? And that's great. But when Rita Daniels spoke to our next guest, Mark Mocha, he had more than a few things he needed to talk about. My name is Mark Mocha. I grew up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I was always drawn to the ocean, so I graduated with plans of going to school out in California. <laughs> I wanted to hang out and surf and, and, and party and have fun. And that's what I did. You know, and I loved it. I loved that lifestyle. My first wife, she was in San Diego for her spring break, and I had a little bungalow on the beach. We liked each other, and uh, we kind of you know, hooked up a little bit. Like, oh my gosh, okay. I just kind of went along with it, and she wanted to kind of settle down and have kids. The next thing I knew, I was uh, married and living on Long Island, and the two cars, and the three kids. And I was like, wow, you know, how did this happen? How did we go from being this free spirit hippie couple to this square couple? I did it, but how did it happen? I don't know. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was watching this stupid movie on TV. Point Break. About these guys that surf. You can only surf, party, and make love for so long before it's time to go to work. Rock and roll. On the side, they'd put on president masks and go rob banks. And I was like, wow, I could do that. That's like a really good idea. When I woke up in the morning, I was even more convinced it was like a really good idea. It was like figuring that if I could just steal enough money, you know, I could make the world a better place and feed the homeless. And, and uh, two weeks later, I robbed my first bank. Since I hadn't been involved in crime, I, I actually went at it as an intellectual exercise. You know, how do I get in? How do I get out? I watched movies. I, I read books. And, you know, it just made sense. I, I think the hardest part about it was just, you know, getting up the nerve to do it, you know. I picked out a place and still went there twice before I actually did it. I went there twice and couldn't do it. And the third time I went there and I did it. I went with minimal makeup. I put my hat on. I put my jacket on. I walked to the bank. I was very calm. And when I went to the teller, I motioned in my hand that I had a gun in my pocket, which I never produced. And I told the teller that this is a robbery. She just filled out the bag and gave me the money. People standing in line, nobody knew. The bank tellers, you know, the, the, the president, nobody knew what was going on because I didn't cause a scene. I passed the bag to the next teller, and the, and the other teller just took the bag and started pulling money out of it that I just got from the first teller. He thought I was making a deposit. And, and, and I was like, uh, homeboy, it's a robbery, you know? And he looked at me like, what? Two minutes later, I was walking out of the bank with a bag full of money. It was an incredible rush. I mean, it was just absolutely stunning. It was like everything was heightened, you know, I could see everything. And I got in my car and I drove away and I drove home. Dumped the bag on the bed and almost gasped at all the money that was in there. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> it worked. About $60,000. I wanted to do like a decent proposal, like just like rolling the money. Like, ooh, it's seductive. I had to check myself three times to make sure I didn't get shot. You know? <laughs> Maybe I missed something, but no. And I was off to the races. That was it. All that talk about changing my life and all this other stuff went right out of my head. And I continued robbing banks. Eventually, I just stopped working. It became like a job to me, you know, go rob a bank. And it was so ridiculous. One time, I just went out and robbed a bank. It's actually the second time I robbed it. And I walked in, and the lady looks up, and she goes, Oh, it's you. Yeah, I remember. Top drawer, bottom drawer, no bait, no funny money. And she remembered me from the first time, and she just filled up the bag with money and sent me on my way. You know, and it's not funny because, I mean, I terrorize people. I never really physically hurt anybody, but I certainly, you know, psychologically hurt people. I never confided in anybody. Nobody knew what I was doing. My ex-wife was a therapist. 
you know, intellectually, she knew there was something wrong, you know, that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the same person anymore. And it worried her, and so she wanted me to go to this therapist. And so I, I went, you know, and uh, but all I had to do was tell this guy what I was doing. Be honest to one person, and it would have ended right there. If I told somebody, it would become real. You know, it would put weight on it, and then not only would I know, they would know. You know, and then it became, you know, very real. It was a regular day, you know, at about 11 o'clock that night, I wanted a six-pack of beer and some beef jerky. I went to uh, the 7-Eleven, and I was sitting there at the intersection, tapping on my brakes. I noticed that the car behind me has, like, little red lights inside the grill, and there's two guys sitting in the front seat, and I was like, oh, that's interesting, it's a cop car, you know, because they always have the, the lights inside, recess in the grill. And I started looking around me, and all of a sudden it became aware to me there was a whole bunch of guys in cars that looked just like cop cars at this intersection. And I got this feeling in my stomach. I said, oh, my God. You know, they're all over the place. The light turned green, and I just pulled in the 7-Eleven. And it took about two seconds before about 20 cars, like, screaming in the parking lot like, with their sirens flashing and the guns out. I was fatalistic in my thoughts. Part of me wanted death by cop. And there was this one moment where I just thought that maybe I should just reach under the seat and pretend like I had a gun under there and see what would happen. And, and I just said, nah. And they came running over to the car, pulled open the door and threw me out. Well, according to the police, I robbed nine banks in about 11 months. You know, one every month and a couple of days or whatever. <sighs> well, my wife found out on the news the news that morning, she looked at the news, and there, there was her husband being led away in cuffs. Suspected bank robbers behind bars. They sent me way up in northern New York State prison. And, you know, as far as you're concerned, you might as well be on Mars, because that's it, you're done there, you're done. I had actually told people not to visit me, not to write me. My mom brought my kids once, and I told her don't ever do that again, and to leave me alone. I'm probably not going to come out again, so, you know, just, this is it, you know, don't come visit me anymore. I spent the first six years of my time fighting, getting uh, in trouble, and lots of uh, time in solitary confinement. And I went to see the sergeant, and he's looking at me as like, you know, what is wrong with you? And he said, you know, Mocha, I don't get you. He says, you know, look at your record, and you're a jerk-off. You know, what is with you, you know? He says, you're not going to make it. And, uh... I'm going back into the box, 90 days, three months. You know, the, the door closed behind me. I was like, my God. So I was sure that I was going to die in there. I was going to hang up. I was going to take a piece of my, my sheet and tie a knot and hang for the light. And I'm sure they wouldn't give a you know, because it happened umpteen times before me. You know, for the first time, you know, in, in, in my bid, you know, in six years, I was honest about who I was and what I'd done. And who am I fooling? You know, I'm just not this person. I just asked, please let me get through this. Just help me get me through this. I started thinking about, you know, you know, all the stuff that I gave up, you know, all my, my ex-wife, my kids, everything else, you know, and all the things that I was going to lose by just not being there, you know, and I just couldn't take it anymore. You know, I just thought, I can't do this anymore. And I asked for paper and pencil, and all the people that I kind of cut out of my life that I didn't talk to anymore, I wrote them. I just wanted to tell people that I'm alive, you know, and I'm thinking of them, and, you know, there's a possibility that one day when I do get out, we can hang out and, you know, see what's what. And the interesting thing was that everybody that I wrote to wrote back to me. Say, Mark, you know, we're just waiting for you, you know, to get your head right. I was released in 2005. You know, I had been in jail 12 years, and, you know, and it was scary. I mean, it was, like, really, you know, I mean, I grew up in New York, and I knew everything about New York, but New York had changed. I did not even know how to get on the subway. My mom worked at Columbia University. I actually just showed up at her office and said, Hi, Mom, I'm home. And she was just amazed to see me. There she was, without judgment, without anything, just with love. And it was good to see her. It was amazing, you know.
As you might imagine, things have taken quite a turn for Mark Mocha. He went on to get a degree in social work and now spends his day securing health care for the homeless. Thank you, Mark Mocha, for sharing your story with the SNAP. It was brought to us by none other than our own Rita Daniels. Now, there are a lot of people out there, like you and me, who don't want to do the wrong thing, who set out not to deceive. But what are you going to do when the rent is due and the cupboards are bare? Being young, alone, and dirt poor in a new city is such an intense and special kind of desperation. I'm surprised there isn't a German word for it. That's where I was in the fall of 2008, freshly moved to San Francisco and looking for a job. Every day I'm hustling. And when every single legitimate resource failed me, I turned to Craigslist. I posted ads for any service I could even pretend to provide. House cleaning, babysitting, dog walking, tutoring. I even listed myself as a tarot card reader. I described tarot card reading as a form of active, intuitive meditation because I was trying to sound new agey and mysterious. And that's when I got the message. You have one new voice message. Hello, I'm calling on behalf of my boss, Mr. Prestigious International Business Consultant. He saw your ad about active, intuitive meditation and is looking for a meditation coach. Are you available to meet tomorrow? On the one hand, I was so broke, I would consider a job selling organs on the black market if it was paying work. On the other hand, I was not, nor had I ever been, a meditation coach. (laughs) I didn't really know what a meditation coach was exactly. And that is when it hit me. She didn't ask for any references in her message. She didn't ask any questions at all. So if I could just play it cool, I might actually be able to fake my way into this gig. Honesty is for people who can afford it. So yes, Mr. Prestigious International Business Consultant, I'd be delighted to be your meditation coach. My local friends provided me with a crash course in how to be a San Francisco healer. It all broke down to a kind of science. Appearance. Remember the three Fs. Feathers, flowy clothing, and faux fur. Vocabulary. Do not underestimate the power of the yummy noise. Imagine the sound you'd make if you were trying to convince a toddler that the creamed spinach you're eating is delicious. Now imagine that that toddler is a grown man you're trying to seduce. Mm. My new meditation student lived near Union Square. He opened the door to his top floor penthouse wearing an open robe and no shirt. For one horrifying second, I wondered if he meant escort service when he said meditation coach. But he bowed to me in greeting, with his hands pressed into prayer position over his heart, and I realized he was just trying really hard to be spiritual. And then he winked, and stayed staring into my eyes without saying a single word. I'd seen hippies do this kind of thing before, just eye-gazing at one another like the rest of the world had fallen away in order to really get one another. So I went with it. Mmm. Eventually, he smiled, and it seemed like the entire interview was over. I'd passed without saying a word. He asked me the question that everything was riding on. So, how much does a session with you typically cost? I'd practiced for this moment all morning. Be cool, Tatiana. Come on, you know what to do. Say it. Say it. Working with me typically costs $100 per session minimum. He grinned. Oh, fantastic! He took out his wallet and folded a freshly minted $100 bill into my palm. I smiled and nodded, speechless. I took off my shoes and he led me into his meditation loft upstairs. We talked about starting with the basics. I said, now breathe and tell me how your body feels. Really feel into it. As he responded with something about cotton candy and birds, I thought, damn, I sound really good right now. 
He showed me how to set his meditation timer, which was a digital clock hooked up to a tiny gong, and we both settled in for 20 minutes of complete silence. He crossed his legs and placed a hand palm up on each knee. I knelt about two feet in front of him, sitting all my weight on my heels like I'd seen monks do in some movie about the Dalai Lama. And this is when I realized sitting for more than 30 seconds on your heels actually means you're cutting off all the blood that would otherwise be flowing to your feet, effectively turning them painfully numb in a matter of minutes. And since I was sitting on reed mats, every move I made would be loud and distracting. I was stuck with the worst case of pins and needles I'd had in my life. I wasn't going to make it. I lifted myself off my heels a little bit, but that just made my knees sore. Two minutes left. One minute. When the gong finally tolled, my client opened his eyes and said, Wow, that was amazing. I am so relaxed. Thank you so much. A few yummy noises later, we were done. He walked me to the door, promising to meditate every morning until I came again to work with him in three days. He tipped me 50 bucks as an introductory bonus. It went on like this for six weeks. On Sundays and Wednesdays, I would earn a quick hundred bucks saying things like, remember to breathe. Good. Good. Mmm. I don't know how it happened, but the line between the lie and who I really was started to blur. The first time I caught myself making a yummy noise while talking to someone, I clapped my hand over my mouth and almost screamed. Suddenly, the biggest danger of all was that I might never get caught as a fake. And then one morning, Mr. International Business Consultant told me he would be leaving for two weeks to go to India. He asked if I would come along. I'll pay for the ticket. Don't even worry about it. And that's when I knew it was over. Either I'd be exposed as a fraud while in a foreign country, or I'd never be able to walk away from this guy. I'd be his pseudo-spiritual lapdog, and that was more than I could stand. So I told him I'd lost my passport in my move across the country, and we'd have to pick up our practice when he returned. I walked out of his apartment, knowing I'd never see the inside of it again. I didn't return any of his phone calls or emails once he got back. I stayed out of his neighborhood for six months after, just to make sure the break was clean. But last week, I saw him again. I was outside a bar in the Mission laughing with some friends. He got out of a limousine full of rich men and headed into the restaurant next door. His eyes flashed with recognition when he saw me, and I panicked and turned my back to him as he walked past. We didn't talk, but that was the first time I wondered if he ever figured out that I'd been faking it all along. Was he angry with me? Did he feel like I'd made a fool out of him? Did he miss me? And suddenly the guilt and resentment I felt for that gullible rich dude was mixed with gratitude. And even though I would never talk to him again, I really, really hoped he was setting his little gong timer and meditating in the mornings in that goofy robe. Tatiana Brown currently lives in San Francisco, where she curates the Lit Slam, litslam.org. We'll have a link at snapjudgment.org. Her piece was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Stephanie Fu. And good news. We've got more tricks of the trade from unrepentant lawbreakers and a story from SNAP's Uber producer, Mark Ristich, who just happened to be hanging out with the criminal element. For real, when SNAP Judgment, the long con, continues.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. This episode we're calling The Long Con. And you know people, regular, good, upstanding people, they get a sense of balance and truth and salvation when they, when they contemplate the idea of an evildoer brought to justice. Well, sometimes the evildoer has got just one more trick up his sleeve. This piece is produced by one of my favorite voices in all of radio, Joe Rosenberg, where he talks to his friend and associate, Mr. Douglas Diamond. We all have at least one friend who specializes not only in getting into trouble, but also, somehow, getting out of it. When I was in college, this friend was named Douglas Diamond. Oh yeah, oh, I'm, I'm definitely that guy. The one story that everyone remembers is the story of the parking tickets. Do you remember how it started? Do you remember your first ticket? Uh, absolutely. It was actually the very first day of school. It was move-in day, and there was a spot where the yellow had worn off of the curb. So I parked there, and I moved some stuff in, and when I came back out, had a ticket. <sighs> so within 15 minutes of coming to Chicago, I had my first parking ticket. So I actually contested that, and a month went by, and I heard nothing back. And so I started digging a little bit, and I found out that they did something different with the out-of-state cars. They didn't have records of me having tickets. So I felt like at that point that I had pretty much gotten away scot-free. It started to occur to me that I could actually take advantage of this to park anywhere I wanted to, anytime I wanted to. I, I, was, I was invulnerable. Was there any question in your mind that you shouldn't do this? Like, no, yes. Like, no. You- no, there wasn't. There's so many places you could park illegally, right in front of the signs where you're at the edge of the curb, behind them, in front of fire hydrants, all sorts of opportunities to, to park right where you need to be. Is anyone, any of your friends, saying, hey, Doug, it's only a matter of time before the city catches up with you, maybe you should cool it? No, because they were all reaping the benefits. Cold out? Raining out? Hey, let, let Doug drive. We can be right at the door of the restaurant we want to go to. And, you know, you get you get a ticket here, you get a ticket there, and you don't really think much about it. But, you know, it was, it was probably around 30 or 40 tickets uh, sometime around the end of the first year when I found out there actually was this list that the city of Chicago publishes for the top 100 parking scoff laws presumably as some sort of a way to shame them into paying for their tickets. And that's kind of where it went off the tracks. The lady at 100 had just over $11,000 in parking tickets, and I felt like that was an achievable goal. This changes the whole strategy, right? You know, before it was just a matter of convenience, but now I, I, I wanted tickets, so things started to get a little more creative. You've got $50 for an alleyway, $125 for a fire hydrant. Blocking a pedestrian walkway is is $100. Wait, back up, because you you just said fire hydrant? Well, I saw a picture on the internet once where they punched a hole through these guys' windows to run the fire hose through the car. So I figured if there was a fire, they'd just do that. I'm not actually endangering anybody. Did you, you honestly believe that? Yeah. Additionally, the, there was this neighbor guy who had a handicap spot, like, specially for him. How can you possibly justify that? Now, in my defense, I saw this guy walking a couple times. He didn't look like he had much of a limp, so I thought... <laughs> didn't have much of a limp? Well, he had a cane, but he wasn't really using it most of the time, so I figured, whatever. Wait, well, what if he's in chronic pain, Doug? What if you, you know, what if you... If it's chronic, then it's not going to get any worse just because I stole his parking spot. And handicap tickets are the most expensive tickets, so... <laughs> in the back of your mind, you, you must have known that there would be a day of reckoning. Well, there was certainly a fear that there would be real repercussions if I got caught, if, if it caught up to me. I thought that that could get real bad. I, I would occasionally have nightmares about it. You know, I would have this dream where my car would get towed and my parents would find out and I'd get in huge trouble. And then my car got towed. I'm actually parked legally 
this day. I I'm parked right across the street. I walk out the front door of the of the apartment building, and it's not there. So, at that point, how much money had you racked up? Pretty close to nine thousand dollars. I've got less than a thousand in the bank account, and you know, at that point, you know that something has gone horribly wrong when you're actually hoping that somebody has stolen your car, <laughs> because that would be the better option. So I go down to the impound and I wait in line for a nerve-wracking hour and a half. So I get up to the window and I ask the guy how much it's going to be. And he says, $125. My registration was out of date. It was a feeling of pure elation. (laughs) I mean, you feel like this is a gift. He says this and... Ode to Joy and the Hallelujah Chorus are playing simultaneously in my head as I think, holy crap, I can afford to pay it. I've been given a second chance. And at that point, I thought I was ahead and I thought it was time to quit. That didn't last very long. Why Why didn't it last very long? (laughs) I, I, I don't want to use the addiction analogy where you just kind of slip back into it but that's kind of what it was it starts a little bit here a little bit there and before you know it you know you're back parking in handicap spots thank you so much Douglas Diamond thank you so much for convincing us all that people who do the right thing are a bunch of chumps. Thank you so much. Speaking of chumps, it's time for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, to tell a tale of what he was up to in his life before radio. Friday morning in Brooklyn, and I'm rollerblading down the streets with $20,000 in my backpack. It's payday, and I'm in charge of the money. Not because I'm organized or good with numbers, but because everyone else that I work with from the top down is shady. It's a moving and storage company, which is pretty much a crooked business. You get people when they're the most vulnerable, and then you whack them with hidden charges. And that was the summer of the great bubble wrap ripoff. For three bucks a foot, we bubble wrapped everything from toothbrushes to mattresses. And everybody was in on it. Our best salesman was Zeke, pure charisma with a heart of cocaine. He was fresh out of Rikers Island where he served time for Grand Theft Auto. And then there's Monkey, the foreman. He's an ex-Israeli commando, lithe, muscular. He wears Versace sweats and he has three social security numbers and three gold cards. The dispatcher, Vlad, is a family man. A two-family man. One in the U.S. and one in Costa Rica. The company snitch is an uptight operations manager called Julius. He's the boss's little spy. He's got one eye on the time clock and the other on his job title. The company is owned by a power couple. My boss, Lena, is a 25-year-old blonde supermodel who handles the nitty-gritty. And her partner, lover, cohort is Ari. He's the heavy, the head boss. An alpha male tyrant with no conscience. I get to work. I blade down the hallway past a wall of movers, all waiting to be paid. I get to my office, start splitting up the cash, and Lena comes in. She says, we've got problems. Yeah, what's up? Customer moved out of storage last week, called up, and her DVD player is missing. Big deal. Does she have moving insurance? Yeah, but it wasn't just missing. It was replaced in the box with bricks and newspaper and then wrapped back up. Oh, well, maybe she's lying. Yeah, I thought that too, but yesterday we got another one. Same thing. She moved out of storage, came home, opened a box, but instead of her stereo, she had bricks and newspaper. And now, what? I've got a guy downstairs right now missing a TV, talking about calling the Better Business Bureau. Now this was bad. Lena and Ari are not afraid of anybody except for the Better Business Bureau. 
Ariarty had to close down his last company due to complaints. That's why she is the president of this one. Come on, she says. Let's go downstairs and bring some cash. I lock up. I follow her down as she undoes her hair, takes off her rings. The irate customer is subdued in seconds and walks out with 800 bucks. But then Lena rounds everybody up. Monkey the foreman, Vlad from dispatch, Julius, and Big Sam the storage manager. She starts in on Big Sam. He's a 275-pound bulldozer of a man in charge of keeping the storage warehouse safe and sound. Today is not a good day to be Sam. Lena says, Sam, I thought I could trust you. Lena, I didn't take anything. Did you stop anybody from taking things? Big Sam just quivers. Then, the elevator doors slam open. And in walks Ari. Everybody quivers. Okay, who's the thief? Nobody says nothing. Okay, you're all fired. Everybody says something. Vlad's screaming at Monkey, Your movers are thieves! Monkey's like, Both your wives are ugly. Julius sidles up to Ari and says, I know for a fact that Sam is letting people in and out of here without checking the access list. Lena shoots Ari a look, and they go off down the rows to talk. Lena comes back with a plan. Okay, first, you, Monkey, get your men and go through every box in the whole warehouse and check for bricks. Vlad, you watch Monkey. Julius, get Ari the old access list. And Sam, Sam, you are either in on it or you are stupid. So you are suspended. The rest of you, this is not over. And it wasn't. Over the next 48 hours, scores of brick TVs, microwaves, and stereos turned up like Easter eggs. Ari is steamed and everybody is looking busy. Then on the third day, Ari walks in with a big smile, followed by a stocky man in a suit and a hat, carrying a very large metal suitcase. Zeke, the ex-con, knows exactly what it is. Hey, is that a lie detector? It's a polygraph, he says. I'm the lie detector. Ari hands me the access list and says, Bring them in, one by one. So they each come in, Vlad, Julius, Monkey, some of Monkey's movers, and Big Sam. And when they go into Ari's office, we hang outside. Zeke says, I wish they would hook me up to that thing. I can make that needle write my name. Big Sam comes out last, drenched in sweat. Lena goes in to talk to Ari, and then she calls me into her office. So, do you want to know who it is? Well, I know it's not Big Sam. You're right, it's not Big Sam. And Vlad, he's got two families to feed. I don't think he'd risk losing his job. Okay. The movers, they don't have enough time to pull that off. And Monkey, Monkey. No, if he's going to steal, he's going to do it with plastic. So that just leaves Julius. Julius, sniveling little Julius? Yep, Julius. He cracked in 10 seconds. Your little spy? All by himself? No accomplice? All by himself. Julius didn't smoke. He didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. He didn't even have child support payments. Hell, we didn't even know he had a personality. But every night, after Sam left, he just went up and down the rows, shopping. From that day, no one ever saw Julius again. Nobody called the cops. Nobody asked questions. We just handled it. Don't worry. Don't worry, Mr. Police Officer. Mark Ristich is a changed man. He's a different guy these days. And so is Pat Masidi Miller, who helped produce that piece. The time, your time is up. You bet the house on Snap, and now it's time to pay. <laughs> well, you, you need some more time? Well, look at here. The boss, Capitan, he is generous today, my friends. Full episodes, movies, music, pictures available on the website, snapjudgment.org. Facebook, Snap Judgment loves Facebook. Twitter, our handle is snapjudgment.org, tweet, tweet. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the most nefarious group of shysters 
the world has ever known. Many's been the person to have their kneecaps broken by the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Stephanie Left Eye Foo Never Misses. The Rottweiler, Pat Mercedes Miller. Anna, No Visiting Hours Sussman. Jamie, Show Me the Money the Wolf. Rita Daniels, Can't Be Broken. Renzo Gorio, Can Be Broken. Lindsay Lee Keel, Sings Like a Bird. And Will Urbina, Please Don't Sing. Now, did you ever see that person hanging out with wise guys trying to act like they know what's going on? Well, before they get a rude awakening, will someone please let the Corporation for Public Broadcasting know they're hanging out with the wrong type? But much love to the CPB and PRX, the public radio exchange, prx.org. And this is not the news. Now, this ain't the news, but you could. You could try to save the day by climbing on the outside of the world's largest building like Tom Cruise did in that Mission Impossible movie only to discover what they left out of the film. The pigeons. Even while the fate of the world hangs in the balance, you could be stymied by swarms of defecating birds and even then, still, not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.